Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to a more perfect union. I'm Nick Remesong. Joining us today uh, from our radio roundtable of regulars, we have our Beacon Hill representative, Jeff Roy, and Democratic Party chairperson, Rachel Plukas. Also, as always, our station manager, Peter J. Yo. <laughs> hey, how you doing, Nick? Good. Peter, you want to lead us off tonight? today? I thought that today would be a wonderful day to talk about the jury system in general, what we think of it, what we can do to advance it along the road to a more perfect union, uh, and also the jury system with respect to uh, political trials. Uh, there was a recent uh, article regarding the New York trial of Mr. Trump and the anticipated difficulties of trying to assemble a jury. But that said, I'd, I'd like to really zoom back because, you know, each of us has experience uh, on a jury. Uh, I also want to sort of open that up because when the attorneys, other court officers, defendant, prosecutor, all of them see the jury file out, that's a mystery moment. You know, the case has been presented, defended, and now they're off into a room, which, you know, sort of becomes this mystery box where magic happens, and then they come out with a verdict. And you know, I think it's important to understand what goes on in that room um, and, and also just how jury duty unfolds. Given the Halloween theme, by the way, I think that we can consider this program to be the day of the mystery jury room. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, nothing like you're uh, killing me, uh, Pete. Presenting I, the I, topic. <laughs> how do we? How do we get past that? Uh, yeah, I, <laughs> you sold it, Peter. You sold it. Uh, thank That's you very much. Uh, thank you very much. Um, You'll be here all week, Pete. Yeah. I am. I'm here all week. You know, come on, see me at Riles on Thursday nights, whatever. Don't, don't forget your waitress. <laughs> yes. Be good uh, to your waiters and waitresses, especially if they've been good to you. <laughs> well, how about I kick off this discussion? Since this one's in your wheelhouse, Jeff. I'd uh, love to hear I, uh, I have yet to serve on a jury. Um, I've been on panels, but I've never made it to the final round. But uh, I have tried my share of cases before juries. And, uh, you know, I tell clients when we go before a jury, I said, it's almost as if you're going to uh, Las Vegas and you're rolling the dice because it's very difficult to, to, to de determine what they are going to come out with. And uh, I will share with you a story from uh, one trial that I had, uh, uh, had done uh, in the Suffolk Superior Court. Uh -huh. we, tr we tried the case for about a week. Uh, and both sides were adamant that uh, 
you know, they were going to win the case. And, uh, you know, we both put on very strong cases, really did not know where it was going to be. We uh, did our closing arguments and uh, the judge decided since it was so late in the day that he was going to let the jurors go home and then they would come back in the next morning and begin their deliberations. Uh And uh, overnight we settled the case. And uh, so we came back into the courthouse the next morning and and told the judge uh, we had settled the case so the the jury does not need to deliberate, but that uh, both of the lawyers would love an opportunity uh, since the jury had sat there for a whole week and had heard the whole case. uh, We're wondering if uh, they would be willing to sit with us and talk with us about you know, what they had heard in the case and uh, what they were uh, about to do. And one of the real strictures in in the jury process is you do not get an opportunity to talk to the jurors. You're prohibited from talking to the jurors. You have to leave them alone. And uh, unless they voluntarily uh, come up to you and say something, you have no idea what goes on in that room. Uh, The judge initially said, no, I'm not going to do that. But he went up to the jury room, he talked to the jurors and uh, made the proposal to them to say, hey, you know, these lawyers uh, would love to come and talk to you. Would you be willing to stay around? You don't have to. But I'll tell you, all of them did stay. Uh, And uh, we went up to the room because the judge after, you know, they said, we'd love to talk to them. We went up and talked to these folks and were positively amazed by things that uh, stood out in their mind Mm -hmm. uh, and what they what they focused on. And I will share with you that after talking to those jurors, we still walked out of there saying we have no idea how they would have decided. They Mm -hmm. had obviously had not made a decision yet, Uh but uh, we were witnessing the discussion amongst them uh, about, you know, pieces of evidence that were important Uh, You know, whether one of the lawyers was reading his closing argument uh, as opposed to saying it verbatim, that had stuck out in the juror's mind. Uh, You know, little things that we never thought of Mm -hmm. and uh, just uh, reaffirmed for me that uh, if you can settle a case um, and you have complete control over it, that's a good idea because uh, you have no idea. And. Uh, The other thing I'll say about jury service, it is the ultimate form of government in action because jury service is guaranteed by the Constitution of both the United States and Massachusetts. And you are entitled to a a jury or a trial by a jury of your peers. And they make the ultimate judgment of what the facts of a case are, and they can control what one party or the other has to do in a certain situation. They can direct a massive corporation to pay damages for something that they may have done uh, to uh, harm another uh, another individual, and they set the standards for what uh, is proper in a community, what is reasonable and proper. And uh, I always tell people, you are the ultimate authority here. You will make the decision. You are the government today, and you hold in your hands absolutely tremendous power to resolve this dispute uh, among 
uh, a few of your neighbors. And then put that all in the context of a political trial such as, uh, such as what is going on in New York today. And uh, it's just amazing both the power of the jury and not knowing uh, what's going to happen in that room. And it's supposed to be made up of people who know nothing about the case, who know nothing about the facts, who have no opinion uh, about the outcome of the case. And, you know, in a, in a trial involving Donald Trump, I don't know where you find those people who have no opinions and no ideas uh, about what evidence is going to be presented in that case. But uh, it's an amazing process. I've enjoyed being a part of it for 35 years, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, it's a topic that's sort of near and dear to my heart in that I have been called to jury duty five times. On one occasion, I got a call back and it was canceled before I even got in the car. On three of the occasions I attended, we were in the room waiting to walk into a trial somewhere, and we were then sent home because the two or three cases that day that required a jury all had been settled. Uh, and then in one case, I was rejected by the defense counsel. Uh, and then so for the five times that I was called, I actually made it. I was impaneled uh, and sat in the court for a day for only one of the five cases. So that's a, just sort of an interesting stat. Um, the case that I sat in on was a DUI case. And I think one of the issues in the room, you know, speaking about it, as I recall it, because, you know, here's my first time really being in deliberation, and I'm, I'm both curious as to how this is going to play out. And, you know, where are the people in all of this? As I think, as Jeff rightly pointed out, the attorneys were somewhat, perhaps surprised, maybe even taken aback by some of the things that the jurors focused on. And just as an aside, I think that between the attorneys and the jurors, they probably the jurors probably provided a service as valuable in agreeing to talk to the attorneys as handing down a verdict, because educating the attorneys, I think, was probably extremely useful, uh, even though it's just, you know, anecdote, but still. So in that same spirit, um, when I was on this case in Woburn, um, a businessman presented himself, the defendant. The overview is he ran into a phone pole on his way home, going from Cambridge to uh, Woburn. Upon investigation, the police thought that he might be under the influence. They made that determination. Hence, there we are at trial. Some other details are uh, his claim that he had uh, one drink at the end of the day with a partner in his business before proceeding home. And the journey was from the time he got in the car to the time he hit the phone pole, roughly 45 minutes, which was one of the things that I was curious about. And when we first sat down in the room, one of the things I realized that the jury foreman, who was really picked at random, somewhat weak in terms of, you know, shepherding the group along. He was sort of shuffling nervously about what do I do now? Mm -hmm. And I suggested, well, maybe one good place to start is before we deliberate, let's all just take a vote about what our present circumstances are. Who believes he's guilty? Who believes he's not guilty? 
and we and and if you're not sure just say you're not sure uh, you know leave leave a leave the little scrap of paper blank we got four blanks two guilties and the rest of them were not guilty which was an interesting distribution the two who thought he was guilty that was interesting because they started off being fairly adamant about that and they just thought that it was a done deal the next thing that you know i suggested to the foreman is well obviously this thing is something that happened on a timeline that's a fact can you lay out the timeline on the whiteboard in the room you know when he got the car statements that they've made and what gets us up to the phone pole and what do we think the status is along the way uh, does that reveal anything to us so after a couple hours discussion on that i then suggested you know if we have any other questions on this we can go back into the courtroom we can ask that question now there was a purpose to the question the purpose to the question was to at least telegraph to the defendant that we were taking this pretty seriously and the question was to the judge do we consider the defendant's time in the car in the entirety with respect to considering a DUI, or do we just consider the defendant's condition as the officer found him? And what would be your guidance on that? Mm -hmm. Well, that got the defendant's attorneys pretty nervous. But what we were really doing, rather than asking the question, was we were sending a message, regardless of how we chose to ultimately agree um and, and finally we we agreed that he was not guilty so he managed to walk away but i think he perhaps more limped away than walked away feeling like it was close uh, so that was how it happened mm -hmm. uh, but the two things that were concerning to me were looking for some steady guidance from the jury foreperson and also um at the outset the absolute belief from two of the jurors that he was guilty but interestingly in the course of deliberation they changed their position so so that was was fascinating uh as an experience and i can think, i ask you a couple questions sure um, absolutely what was the driver injured when he hit the pole no he was not not so he didn't have a blood test or anything that you could have a reading as to what his blood alcohol level was is that correct that is correct it was a determination by the officer on site and no uh, breathalyzer no breathalyzer mm. and and did the officer testify at the trial mm -hmm. did he testify about the the sobriety tests that he gave to the uh person he did and, and that was the only evidence you had right intoxication okay no. well what you're doing is you're going down the exact same thread that the jurors went down with respect to the depth and solid solidarity uh you know scientific basis of the evidence sure um and so uh, here again let's let's talk about reasonable doubt right yep and in trying to measure the status of the defendant according to reasonable doubt even though some may say well yeah he probably was you know at the edge or maybe even dui but we can't prove it conclusively we can't mm -hmm. believe it conclusively so i think that one was actually 
uh, deliberated reasonably well. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, I came away feeling like we did our job. You know, it's interesting. You did a, a criminal case to see if he was guilty of a crime. Correct. And the standard of proof in a criminal case is beyond a reasonable doubt. And there you have is. to prove it to a moral certainty. Yes. In a civil case. So right. say somebody was injured by that guy right. and they were suing him. Mm-hmm. You would only have to prove that it's more likely than not that he was intoxicated. Right. 51%. 51 yeah. percent. The the scales of justice have a have to tip ever so slightly in favor of that uh, of that evidence A major difference between a uh, a criminal and a civil case. Obviously, it's uh, it's a different standard because in a criminal case, you're taking away somebody's liberty, whereas in a civil case, you're taking somebody's money. So mm-hmm. uh, that yeah. justifies the lower standard. But yeah, uh, fascinating we, uh, case. Yeah, we had a, a pretty pretty, uh, lar- you know, a real grounding in that, uh, an education in that uh, several years ago with the O.J. Simpson uh, cases. Not guilty in the criminal, guilty in the civil. So, yeah, we, we, there is, if you pay attention, you can find these things out. And I think that a lot of people go into jury duty. I mean, I had, it's, it's, it's odd because I've sat on, I have been impaneled once on a jury, as I was mentioned at the top of the show, or just before the show that uh, about 30 years ago, also a DUI. Um, we went in, took the, pa- um, the the pulse of the jury right away, and it was 12, It was all guilty. So I said, well, we probably should at least sit here for a little while. You know, <laughs> It's Friday, you know, we got on a, in a nice day in midsummer, but, you know, we should probably spend some time, let the defendant feel that we made some effort because it was, it was fairly obvious. And the, and the one glaring point that one woman brought up was the uh, nature of the, the quality of the dress presented by the, the um, testifying officer, the arresting officer. She said he looked like he was wearing his little brother's suit. And I said, well, I guess if that's the one thing you take away, it's the one thing you take away. But yeah. And that's the amazing thing. Mm-hmm. You, you just pointed out exactly what I was talking about, that they'll focus on something that has absolutely nothing to do with it. Uh, do you mind sharing with us what kind of a case it was? It was a DUI. It was a young fellow who was, uh, uh, he was stopped for erratic driving. And he testified, of course, you know, he claimed he was not uh, got not guilty. And of course, it, it's the same thing. There was no blood tests. There were no bre- breathalyzers. Uh, I think he might have done two or three uh, steps in, you know, the, walk a straight line, backward alphabet, uh, count backwards from 100, something of that sort. And then it was also that, the fact that, you know, he did not do very well on those, according to the, you know, the complaining officer. And the fact that um, the booking officer testified that he was extremely belligerent. But the one point that stood out to me was he said he was on his way home from buying diapers for his, his child. And he had no diapers in the car and they said, well, what, what happened to the diapers? And his response, I'll never forget this is, Hmm, that's a good question. (laughs) So the, he was not, he was, he was not well coached, unfortunately. Uh, But yeah, it was, that did strike me. This, this one woman, all she focused on was the fact that the complaining officer, the arresting officer was not 
he, his clothing didn't seem to fit him very well. He was extremely nervous. I noticed that, but he was extremely young also. But yeah, it, and it's, it's funny what people do focus on, what, what strikes them, what they bring away with, what they think might be relevant. And it was not, you know, as, as far as his demeanor, it was just his choice in sartorial splendor. But as I say, we, we, it, was, it was an immediate, you know, uh, guilty verdict right away. But I thought I was fascinated with the whole process, sitting and listening and um, just the, you know, watching the interplay between the attorneys and also the animosity. <laughs> well, not the animosity, the tension between the state's prosecutor and that arresting officer. She was not pleased with the way he was testifying. And you could tell. So I thought, well, that's that's something to look at, I guess. Rachel, what's your jury service experience? Well, so I've never actually been called. And Jeff, you you know this darn well, that things like serving uh, in a public role, being called to serve in that way is something I get a real like thrill out of. Election day is like one of my favorite days of the entire year. I absolutely love voting um, and serving on a jury. Uh, it does seem like something that could be rather, you know, like boring and stressful. Um, but but I I long for my first call to jury duty um, and it's never happened um, on. I've actually experienced the other side of this as well, though, and had a very interesting experience. I uh, dealing with epilepsy and having now gone multiple years without a seizure or anything like that. Um, I did behind the wheel have a seizure and crash my car when uh, police arrived and they gave me that test. It's the same exact test my neurologist gives me when I go in for my appointments. Can you walk in a straight line? Can you follow my eyes? And of course, because I had just been uh, in a yeah, I was still post seizure. I was still shaken. So um I they took me in. I went to trial um, and the jury came back with a guilty verdict. However, something I did not know could happen is the judge overruled the jury. The judge said that that wasn't that he didn't like that ruling and instead mm -hmm. dismissed it. Um, and I, I found that to be that that was very, very scary for a little bit of time there. Um, and I'm not sure what the judge how the judge exactly determined that he was going to do that. I was told it like almost never happens. Um, so I'm, I'm still, you know, counting my blessings, but not sure exactly what happened in mm. that case. You know, that does happen sometimes. It is very rare and it's called a judgment, notwithstanding the verdict. Uh, J N O V is the, um, the uh, acronym, but um, so you know, jurors are required to follow the law and uh, they are required, you know, they are given a lengthy set of instructions by the judge on what the state of the law is. And, um, you know, you hear this phrase, uh, juror nullification, uh, that, uh, you know, there are juries that will say, hey, we don't care what the law is. This is what we feel how the case should be decided. And uh, this is what we're going to do. And you know, the judges there is to, to control that, to make sure that the verdict is rendered uh, in, in consistent with the law. And I, I'll tell you, the, there was one case I had 
where I actually asked the judge to intervene. Uh, and it was in an, uh, in an injury case uh, where I had a woman uh, who was severely injured. And the jury found that the defendant was 100% at fault and uh, that uh, we presented evidence that she uh, incurred $40,000 in medical bills. She had a broken hip, so she had extensive pain and suffering that went along with it. And the jury verdict was for $40,000. And, uh, you know, I said to the judge, I said, clearly they found that the defendant was responsible. And clearly they found that the injury that she sustained was causally related to the negligence, yet they only gave her her medical bills. That's not consistent with what the law requires. The law requires them to compensate her for everything that was taken from her. And not only did she sustain medical bills, but she incurred pain and suffering. And by law, they have to uh, uh, compensate her for that. And in, and in that particular case, the judge has an op option to provide his own compromise amount. And in this case, the judge said, I will award $100,000 to this woman, notwithstanding the verdict. And uh, if the sides don't like that, then we're going to have a new trial. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's there to protect to make sure that you don't have a runaway jury or a, a jury that decides that they're just going to do whatever it is uh, they want. It is very rare because the jury ultimately is the fact finder and they are charged with finding the facts. They can't alter the law because they don't like how the facts came out. All right. Once you make a finding of the fact, okay, so what does the law require you to do? And you need to do it. And if you don't do it, the judge is there uh, to take action uh, despite the verdict. I hope that explains it um, a little better. Um, but uh, these mechanisms are there to make sure that uh, justice is served. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Peter, you're muted again. Uh, Jeff, you bring up an interesting point with respect to following the law. Um, one of the cases that I was called up uh, for in Lowell was a case of a school teacher, a high school teacher, who had an affair with a 15-year-old girl. That was something that was, you know, admittedly fact by the defendant. And so I, I did not get impaneled on that. I was rejected by the defendant's counsel. Um, and I believe that the reason for it, you know, we're, we're called, in, first of all, we're called into the courtroom one by one to be interviewed. And so all of the jurors are sitting somewhere, prospective jurors are sitting somewhere else, and then their names are called, they go to the courtroom where they're interviewed by the judge and both counsels. And in that case, uh, the judge asked me the question, do you understand that in Massachusetts, regulation states that a minor is incapable of providing consent with respect to an intimate relationship, to which I said, yes. And I said it definitively. That's when the defendant's counsel rejected me on the spot. Obviously, it would have meant a really steep argument on the defendant's side for me to step over that. But again, if following the law is such that 
a minor can't under law pr- provide consent, you know, whatever argument the defendant might make, I I couldn't really see any way around at that moment. I couldn't see my way around a guilty verdict. And so um, I don't know how long the trial went on, but I was not part of it. But I thought it was, well, this is going to be a pretty horrific case. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'll just simply answer the question as best I can. And I think a fair number of the jurors were actually uh, rejected you know, one by one. Uh, and it was probably quite a challenge given the judge's questioning of each juror and what their responses were to that. You know, there are a couple of, of new things that um, have been introduced into the jury process since I've been in the legislature. In, um, in 2014, uh, we introduced the notion of uh, voir dire by lawyers uh, and that wasn't until 20, I believe it was 2014. Prior to 2014, it was only the judge who could ask the questions of the jurors. And the lawyers had to submit the questions uh, to the judge. Most other states in the nation allow lawyers to ask the questions and, and they, can, uh, they can go into depth and uh, really drill down on on an issue to find out if there's any bias. And I, I thought it was rather unfair that in Massachusetts, uh, we didn't have the opportunity to do that as lawyers. Lawyers have as their craft uh, the ability to ask questions to really weed out any potential bias. And uh, I was happy that uh, the legislature changed the law in 2014. And now you, if you go sit on a jury today, you you will likely be quizzed uh, by the lawyers in the case. And it's very important that a uh, a party be provided with, you know, a, an impartial jury. Mm. And, uh, you know, as as a lawyer picking a jury prior to 2014, here's what happens. So the jury pool shows up and, you know, about 15 minutes before they begin parading into the uh, courtroom, the court officer hands you a stack of questionnaires that the jurors had filled up. And uh, they're not always completely filled out. You get a, a little blurb about uh, some case they may have been involved in or some bias that they may have, but they don't go into great detail about what's going on. So you have very limited information about the jury. It's very difficult to make an assessment based on Mm. that one page piece about whether somebody's qualified. And, uh, you know, with all due respect to judges, they are not the most artful uh, quizzers of uh, people. I mean, you know, they're rather dull and dry. There are some some better ones than others. And not every lawyer that's uh, not every judge that sits on the bench has tried cases. I mean, they come from all walks of life. Uh, uh, my biggest complaint is going before a judge who has never sat in my shoes and tried a case and knows what it's like uh, to get prepared for that trial. And I've al- always found that to be bizarre that we have so many judges who lack that experience in a courtroom actually making decisions about what should happen in that courtroom. So that was a great move, I think, by the legislature to really uh, impose fairness in jury selection. 
And the other thing that we changed, and uh, this one always cracks me up because, um, you know, in in a case where somebody has is harmed through medical malpractice or product liability, construction accident, auto accident, the jury's called upon not only to find uh, who's responsible for that injury and what that injury was, but they also have to determine the amount that will make that person whole. And uh, up until 2014, lawyers could not mention a number about what they were looking for. So you send these 12 people who are, have never done this in their lives into a jury room with really no guidance about how to determine uh, what number to give. And, uh, you know, it just flies in the face of reality. So luckily, we changed the law, and now uh, jurors can hear what the lawyers think about the number. It's not always a good strategy to uh, put a number in, um, because you may turn the jury off, you may go too low, but at least you have some latitude to give them some guidance about what they should be looking for and what you think is a reasonable verdict in a Mm. case. So those are two changes that have happened uh, in the last eight years. Also, from the attorney defendant's position, you you don't want to end up, you know, bidding against yourself in naming a number. Mm. So, yeah. but the, the 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 phrase "broad ear" is interesting to look at because it applies now to jurors as well as uh, to witnesses. Sometimes I'll uh, shine a spotlight on the movie "My Cousin Vinny" years ago, where. Marissa Tomei was a witness, a, a uh, supposed professional and highly qualified witness with respect to cars. Um, and they used the term voir dire in that particular scene uh, to qualify her as a witness. I think um, it was voir dire. Right. As I recall, voir dire. Right. Your Honor, these Utes. <laughs> Joe Pesci at his best. Um, and Herman Munster also. Right. Fred McGuinn. Fred Gwynn. But it, it, I think that 2014 move is a great move forward with respect to uh, uh, the jury's role and the attorney's role. Uh, again, in my circumstance in Lowell, it was prior to 2014. And and so it, it begs the question, if you in Massachusetts or in any state, for instance, you, you can do a deep dive into, call it the constitution of each juror, whatever that may be. Uh, as Jeff, you rightly pointed out in the very beginning of this, uh, and what showed up yesterday as an article in New York with respect to a prospect of Trump trial, how do they impanel a jury given the amount of publicity and you know notoriety that the defendant carries? Uh, so that one kind of baffles me. I don't know if we move a trial to New Zealand or, or, or where, yeah. but given... Also, given the information put forth by the January 6th committee, obviously now widely public, um, what does that mean for Merrick Garland, who now has to figure out as AG whether they're going to move forward in some way, and uh, what will be the difficulties there? You know, So uh, that one kind of puzzles me uh, as to whether or not there is a a dampening of of uh, the attorney general's will to go forward, perhaps believing that 
an innocent, a not guilty verdict will almost be guaranteed given the biases. The other question is, as jurors are questioned by attorneys, when you look at the general population and the distribution of beliefs regarding the big lie and the distribution of people who are committed to the defendant in all circumstances and conditions, to what extent might prospective jurors attempt to answer the questions in a way that gets them on the panel to exercise their true beliefs after the fact? You're, so you're that's talking about stealth question. jurors. Yeah. 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 I mean, that, and it, the, the court, of course, the case going on right now, currently in New York, is against the Trump organization. Right. And not Mr. Trump himself, uh, President Trump himself. And the question of stealth jurors is very, very uh, apropos on this because how many people are out there who are looking to either disrupt, or influence uh, the de deliberations, uh, have a, an agenda of their own, and they will be less than forthcoming uh, during the process of what you're. And it amazed me that yesterday they were able to impanel seven people already. I thought we would be going at this for weeks, but they've got seven impaneled. Um, now, they, I thought the uh, Gravantes, uh, the defense attorney, Nicholas Gravantes, uh, promise to the perspective jurors at the start of this on Monday that, uh, you know, Mr. Weisselberg will uh, testify uh, reluctantly, but he'll answer all questions quite truthfully. So uh, <laughs> that's a, that's a heck of a, that's a ringing endorsement, but yeah, it, it, and it is a, it's a criminal case against the organization. And evidently the judge had uh, advised the attorneys that this is, we're not to deal with politics. You cannot ask questions about their political, um, political feelings um and this is not a, a you know, trump is not on on trial it's the organization and in particular uh you've got um, testimony from someone who took a plea agreement uh, alan uh, weisselberg who you know who will only test who will only ask questions answer questions in this trial but he will not give any information against the organization so that in and of itself uh, are, are do you feel that you know, the jury's been hamstrung. Do you feel that the attorneys have been hamstrung? They cannot ask certain questions. Uh, they have to deal with a very narrow scope. Does that really impact and does it really kind of make the whole effort moot? Well, yeah, there's a lot of wild cards in that deck mm -hmm. right there. Yeah. Well, let me ask you. You know, uh, one thing I, I see um, a lot of times is people watch portions of trials, uh, they'll see some snippets on TV. And uh, they'll often have their own judgment of uh, what that evidence points to. And nothing bothers me more than the 15th juror, who's not in that courtroom, who's not watching everything, who's not seeing the expressions on people's faces, who's not, you know, privy to everything that the jury saw, offering a view that that jury got it wrong, that they did something wrong. I, I have such faith in jurors. I mean, despite some of the things that we heard about, you know, earlier today and some of the frivolous things that get thrown uh, into the discussion, um, I have to say nine out of 10 times, the jury gets it right. 99 out of 100 times, the jury gets it right because uh, it's a unique 
bonding and bringing together of people. And uh, it's almost like uh, uh, they become friends for life because they've gone through this experience together. But uh, I do find that uh, they tend to take their responsibility and their role seriously. They are attentive to it and, you know, tend to get it right. So I think even in this case uh, involving the Trump organization, I have real confidence that we're going to have a just verdict uh, come out of that case. And I think people can tell when somebody's being truthful um, and when they're when they're lying. And I'm sure that uh, if Mr. Weisberg goes off track, there's plenty of documentation to cross examine him on and uh, really drill down to get the truth. And I think that's something I'd really love to watch is the mm-hmm. cross examination yeah. uh, of Mr. Weisselberg. Um, but by and large, I think we're going to I think we're going to learn a lot from the case. And uh, I'm confident that once again, uh, the jury will get it right. What so the couple of questions I have? Uh, the first one, uh, given uh, 2014 and Massachusetts progress towards uh, improving the jury system, you know, voir dire and the like, what else off the top of your mind, Jeff, might we see or or exercise with respect to even improving the quality of the jurors? Well, I, I think um, we have to be respectful of the jurors. Um, I think providing them with a good experience the moment they enter a courthouse and providing them with a uh, reasonable accommodations once they're there. Uh, I think the federal court system does it better than the state court system. They actually uh, pay these jurors for the reasonable costs that they incur. You know, parking is something, if you're, you're a jury in Suffolk County, and you have to pay $42 a day to park. Uh, I think the Commonwealth has an obligation to reimburse you uh, for that. Uh, Provide them with uh, a lunch if they are there deliberating. And most uh, most courts do provide that. Um, There was a time uh, that uh, was a slippery practice that uh, the court officers in one of the courts Mm. Uh, made the lawyers pay for the lunches for these juries. And uh, once the higher ups caught on and they said, no, that's, uh, you know, that's not the way this is supposed to work. You know, you have one juror going to uh, Sam Lagrasse's and the other one uh, going to McDonald's and, uh, you know, certainly can influence the outcome. But I I think, uh, you know, making people uh, comfortable and making people understand that they're doing real serious government work and by heightening you know the conditions under which they are i think that's something that we can uh, really improve and endure education you know people people should want to do this people should want to serve and uh you know the the people that uh, i will excuse from a jury uh if i hear a juror saying well, I've got this to do and I've got this to do and I really can't be here for two weeks. And uh, they come up with every excuse in the book. I don't want a juror there that doesn't want to be there. 
I want somebody who's going to listen, take the job seriously, and and render a just verdict. Uh, you know, I guess those those are some pieces uh, that I think uh, I think that we could look at to improve the experience. No, I would agree with that. I also think that perhaps this is actually for the good, in my view, in that as as people retire and they have more time, I think that that introduces perhaps, and this is not a negative statement, an age bias in juries because people none who, taken, Peter. People who can give their time because they don't they don't have a job, they don't have to go to work. But I also think that perhaps with that age comes wisdom and a tempering of of perhaps uh, beliefs that they might have had in their misspent youth. Uh, but but uh, I, I actually see that as perhaps a good byproduct of the selection process. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, I mean, I, as a recently retired and mature gentleman, um, I have. You know, I, I thought, you know, <laughs> maybe I just go hang around Dedham Superior and just volunteer. You know, I haven't been called. I'd like to sit, you know, give me a shot. You know, you, you'll like me. But uh, I, I understand why that's not possible. So here's one last question I'll put out there. Uh, my last question is what we have hundreds of aggrieved victims in the January 6th event, all the lawmakers. Smells like a class action civil suit against Mr. Trump to me. Thoughts? I I think that's that's very very possible. I think that's more than possible. It's probable. Uh, you have the uh, Capitol police officers who were injured. You have the family of the police officer who was killed during the insurrection, and then you have uh, others who were you know just traumatized. Just the idea that this could happen is going to be something that they, you know, are going to deal with for the rest of their lives, and it's going to be difficult. So yes, I think that that's that's a something that it's it's going to be watched very closely, and just I mean, how members of Congress could sue it. Exactly. Now, I guess the the final thought I would have is, if you haven't been on a jury, if you haven't been impaneled, from my own experience, it's a strong recommend. If you can take the time when called, uh, please do so. It's really, really worth doing. And so that said, I kind of look forward to the next time I'm called. Yeah, uh, so. so am I. I'm trying to think how I can better the odds. But uh, that, again, <laughs> might, might, might disqualify me right off the bat. Yeah, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, it would seem as if another more perfect union hour has flown by, and uh, we do have to say goodbye until next week. Now, if you would like at any time to weigh in on our discussions, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. If you enjoyed our discussion, let us know. More importantly, if you disagree and you did not enjoy our discussion, that's all the more reason to let us know. Now, you can also share or listen to this program or any of our past episodes anytime. Our podcasts are available online at our website, wfpr.fm. And so for our panelists, Jeff Roy, our Beacon Hill representative, 
Rachel Plukas, the Franklin Democratic Committee chairperson. And as always, our station manager, Peter Jay. I'm Nick Remesong. Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.